Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the OIES China Energy Program. My name is Anders Hovey, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute. On the 8th of August, 2023, the China Program published an issue of the Oxford Energy Forum on the geopolitics of energy in China. This podcast is part of a series drawing on the rich OEF contributions. The aim of the forum was to think about China's role in the geopolitics of energy, both fossil fuels and new energy supply chains, both from China's perspective and the view from other regions around the world. Today's podcast, the sixth and last in our series, features two contributions, the first on the normalization of Chinese infrastructure lending in Africa, an article authored by Dan Marks, Research Fellow for Energy Security at RUSI, and the second on the article U.S.-China Relations and the Global Energy Transition, authored by Jane Nakano. Nakano is Senior Fellow with the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Now, turning first to the topic of Africa, I'm speaking with Dan Marks of RUSI. Dan, China's investments in Africa have recently been declining. Can you start by explaining why that is? Well, I, th- I think it's a difficult question. There, there are clearly a number of factors. Some of them are strategic, some of them political. I think what I tried to highlight in my article is that, that there are also quite mundane reasons for, for why financing to Africa may be reducing from, from China. And these are actually just around the performance of Chinese loans, particularly in sectors such as electricity. China has had quite a number of problems. It's had problems with quality of EPC in some cases, so the quality of construction. You see this in, in plants like Morapule B in Botswana, which was, I think to my knowledge, the largest public investment in Botswana at the time, but struggled to perform for years. And I think it's still operating below capacity. It's a 600 megawatt coal power plant. And, you know, of course, lots of problems for China, but also the, the typical problems that affect pretty much all projects and all lenders to especially electricity in Africa around payment, being paid on time, being paid sufficiently, all of those kind of just normal issues which have cropped up. And I think you know, there, there have been kind of myths around China's investment appetite in Africa that that it had, that it, it must be getting, you know, other benefits aside from repayment in order to justify the risks it was taking, that it valued its strategic relationship particularly highly, that it was exchanging with minerals and things like that. And in some cases that might have been true. But I think actually in a lot of cases it, it wasn't true. And certainly financiers, kind of more conventional financiers in Africa who've worked with Chinese lenders have said, you know, that they just think that in a lot of cases some of the lenders were a bit naive and lacked a bit of experience with project finance structures, but also with lending in Africa, and um, you know they got their fingers bent. So that's that's another reason why I think Chinese investment is likely to be to be less. It's just a it's a learning experience. They face the same problems as everybody else as well in finding quality projects. You know, like Africa struggles for large scale investable projects, largely because most of the electricity grid, in particular, again, so a lot of this is based on on electricity. The markets are liquid, they're not, your tariffs are not cost reflective or collections are not very good. Utilities are illiquid 
or you know, or just not solvent. And so there's just not that much. There are not that many things that you can put your money into. So once you've been been burnt a few times, you think twice. Now, on the topic of myths that you identified, to what extent do you think overall has investment in Africa been strategic versus commercial and opportunistic up until now? And in the future, is it likely to be more commercial or more strategic, such as trying to lock up critical minerals or energy supplies or resources? Uh, What's your view on how things shake out going forward? I think it really varies player to player. I mean, perhaps the, the biggest myth around Chinese investment is that it's monolithic. I think there are something like 5,000 EPC contractors in China. You know, there's every contractor has its own way of looking at the continent. I mean, for the contractors themselves, I think they are pretty opportunistic. For the financing, it can be more strategic. But again, I think also actually, you know, they their their policy directives, I think, are not necessarily as or haven't certainly in the past always been as sophisticated as people might think. You know, I think sometimes there's just a need to keep Chinese workers employed, to keep Chinese factories going. And, you know, for that, you your job as, you know, the export, export credit agency or, you know, an international concessional lender or whatever it is, is to support Chinese companies in their contracts. So in that sense, you know, it's strategic, but not geopolitically kind of strategic. I think, you know, it would be interesting to see how the relationship between infrastructure lending and minerals develops. I mean, on the one hand, they tend to go hand in hand anyway. You know, getting minerals out requires physical infrastructure, particularly roads, sometimes rail. If it's rail, then, you know, your most efficient railways are electric. They're not diesel. So, you know, so you could see that you could have direct support like that. I mean, it's very colonial, very colonial echoes, that kind of investment. I mean, that's exactly what happened in the colonial era. And there may be some resistance to that. You know, one of the selling points of Chinese lending has supposedly been investment in industrialization. That's one of the, the things that's trumpeted in Ethiopia, for example, investment in, you know, business enterprise zones and stuff like that. You know, could you see investment in processing in, in Africa? It's it's very hard to say. I mean, can the question in some ways is, is the strategic advantage worth the risk? And I think that'll be different depending on where you're looking in the in this the value chain. So, you know, for getting the minerals out, you know, yes, that's almost certainly worth the risk. You you need because you need it and you can't do it without that. You need the port, you need the the trains or the roads, you need the electricity at the mine site. And you need the energy at all the other points in that chain. But, you know, when it comes to something like the early stages of processing or beneficiation, well, you know, there's African initiatives to do that. I'm sure China will want to probably need to at least give some element of support to that. But, but you know, how far can they go? Well, again, there's the cons. I think as one of the le- lessons from the past decade is probably that, you know, you, you don't just want to throw endless money at, at these things if you're not going to get the very basics of finance right, you know, and <laughs> a lot of the money back. So I think, you know, those questions will be playing and there will be a tension, a tension there. So in that sense, I suppose you could see say that, that Chinese lending will probably be both more strategic and more commercial, if that makes sense. And I mean, it probably helps when it comes to minerals and things like that, that, you know, a lot of these are backed by 
either strong contracts or very strong relationships, or the, you know they're actually serving Chinese companies in Africa. So your your risk is slightly different. Now you write that for African countries, the shine has worn off Chinese money. On the other hand, Africa's energy infrastructure needs investment, especially if the clean clean energy transition is going to go ahead. How do you see African countries balancing the need for finance on one hand versus mitigating some of the downsides of Chinese investment that they have, in some cases, experienced in the past? That learning process has happened on both sides. So, you know, on the Chinese side, there was the kind of rush to get contracts, to put money in, you know, the belief that your kind of special relationship would mean that you got paid. And on the African side, there was also this kind of belief that, you know, the Chinese money was fantastic. It came without all the restrictions of, of Western money. It was much quicker. It was coming at real scale. It was not picky about technology. You know, you could do coal if you wanted to. And, you know, that this was really going to kickstart industrialization again or the electricity sector or transport, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, the reality was that actually, you know, the, the problems are just really holistic and very complex as to why these projects are not pri being privately financed already or you know why it's so difficult to to get them off the ground there are lots and lots of reasons which are very complex as to why infrastructure projects in africa just are so slow i mean some of them are just you know, demographic and down to the realities of doing business in africa which is that there's very low population density and therefore your returns to infrastructure are lower because your costs are much higher you know, you just have less road users per mile, less electricity users per mile of distribution network than you do in highly populated places like China or Europe or America. Well, America is slightly different. But I think in that sense, the, the learning has perhaps and hopefully been in Africa that, you know, that having the, the availability of money isn't of itself the reason to go ahead with a project you know the project does still need to make sense and you still need to repay the loan so you know, all that kind of technical economic feasibility studies that you know were kind of in many cases given pretty short shrift in some of the chinese projects you know they they're important because you need to pay the loan and and i think that kind of stuff has become more important i mean in terms of kind of how to factor chinese money in I, I think African governments are very good at this and you know they always have been quite good in some ways at, at balancing you know different interests of different players in Africa I think sometimes there's a view of African governments as kind of followers and takers of of whatever money is available and but that's not really true you know in the Cold War Africa was quite adept at playing off different interests a lot of those governments now have experience with Chinese lenders they've got relationships they know what the problems are or they should. And, you know, they're now much better able to, in the early stages, negotiate what they want. You know, what do they want for local labour forces? What's acceptable in terms of you know, bringing in Chinese labour, which is always a big problem, not increasing, you know, having benefits seen locally, technology transfer where relevant, you know, all of those kind of issues, your know, potential environmental problems where you know where that causes concern for the government and you know and basically deciding okay where can we deploy most usefully Chinese money 
where can we deploy private money? Where can we deploy multilateral and you know, European bilateral development money? I don't think it hurts African governments to have more options and to be able to deploy different funds in different kind of for different applications. What countries and what types of projects can serve as examples of the new approach to lending and project finance in Africa for the clean energy transition? And of course, this is a huge continent with lots of countries. So maybe just two or three. There are basically there there are a number of ways in which projects are financed in Africa. There's the kind of very conventional, well, that's a very conventional, the kind of very westernized project finance model, which is got all of the I's dotted, all of the T's crossed, is credit enhanced and risk mitigated absolutely to the teeth. It's quite expensive, takes a very long time, is backed by development finance institutions, but results in quite solid projects usually, and certainly, you know, projects which have a better payment, <laughs> repayment record. I've seen some new models as well across the continent. So the EPC plus finance model is starting to come up more. It was used very effectively in Egypt, actually with Siemens for gas power, but it's also being used in Ghana for solar power plants, especially tied to hydro power plants, quite effectively with local financing. And the same is happening in Angola. And then obviously you have the traditional public projects you with just straight lending to utilities. So China quite often has generally engaged in, in the, the latter. So you, it lends to the utility, the utility builds the plant and pays back off its balance sheet. That is problematic. It puts you at the heart of, of politics, you know, energy sector politics of you know, utility spending and misspending and corruption and all the rest of it. EPC plus finance is potentially quite a promising route for, for China. It has more protections and more removal from some of those issues, but doesn't mean that you don't have to take a stake in the project and you're not so, so you're not so exposed to kind of the equity type risks that you don't really want to be. China, well, China traditionally is not wanted to be involved with in infrastructure lending in Africa. So you could certainly see more of that type of of lending. And, and I think you, you have seen that in projects dotted around, but basically you have you, you can see that kind of approach. And I think you know, from a Chinese perspective, that isn't a kind of a, perhaps a middle way that, that might be attractive. Okay, Dan, thank you very much for joining today and also for your contribution to the forum. Our next guest is Jane Nakano of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Nakano has written about U.S.-China relations and the global energy transition. Now, I wondered if you could just start out by laying out the areas of competition between the U.S. and China on the topic of energy transition. I think we're all aware of some of the highlights, but at the broadest level, how does competition in this field differ from competition in the field of fossil fuel geopolitics, which I think is more old hat for most people? Sure. I think there are couple fronts where this you know, energy transition-related competition and geopolitics are starting to play out. One clear area to me is the manufacturing front, uh, where China leads the world in capacity expansion, not just in you know, wind and solar uh, capacities or component manufacturing, but then also EV batteries and more recently uh, electrolyzers uh, that are key, key for clean uh, hydrogen production. 
And then when it comes to innovation, you know, China has been really emerging as a leading sort of a, you know, clean energy innovation powerhouse. And, you know, when we look at patent filings for both quantitative and qualitative indicators, you know, China is really starting to show a very, you know, strong capacity in, in this, on this run as well. And I, and I just definitely do not want to forget critical mineral supply chains as well, because, you know, these minerals are key to these, you know, clean energy technology components. That's also where we're starting to see more competition rather than cooperation in the recent years. And, you know, Anders, I I think that's a great question as well, that, you know, how is this different from this, you know, geopolitics of energy that's for the longest time been much more in the context of fossil fuels, especially oil, you know, crude oil, and perhaps some products in some, you know, specific senses. But I think to me, the key difference here is how I think there's this, you know, industrial capacity, uh, both the United States and China have, and that's really, you know, making this, the security of external demand or export market less relevant. You know, in the fossil fuel geopolitics, I, you know, leverage is gener- generally associated with the supplier side, but a supplier nation has always been generally concerned with this security of demand for it's, you know, fossil fuel commodities. Again, you know, could be crude oil, you know, natural gas, or even coal. But for, you know, from the, mainly from the industrialized nations like the United States, but in the current uh, dynamics, you know, uh, both uh, the United States and China want to really further their industrial competitiveness by, you know, utilizing its raw commodities and resources and turn them into uh, more advanced and higher value yielding technologies. So that's to me is a key difference. Right. It's all about moving up the value chain, not just about commodities and trade. Now, you write that there are several fields in which the energy transition is not a zero sum game for the US and China. And indeed, the clean energy transition might not be possible without China's scale up of clean energy manufacturing which has resulted in lower prices for renewables and batteries and in the future electric vehicles themselves. Currently, what are the fields where China and the U.S. do work together in this area? And are there some fields where China and the U.S. basically have to work together in the clean energy transition? Clean energy transition, it's not just about sort of a clean energy technology per se. So I think the one that comes to my mind right away is, you know, in the area of natural gas. You know, natural gas is a really the cleaner or cleanest fossil fuel alternative that China has, you know, alternative to coal that China has. And there, you know, China has become the world's, you know, leading importer for liquefied natural gas, while the United States has become a top uh, LNG exporter in the, in the world. We're starting to see more, I guess, you know, stronger tides. I don't know if cooperation is, you know, the, exactly the, you know, the really the right word because, you know, cooperation sounds like it's much more deliberate, somewhat, you know, government to government at times. But, you know, definitely, you know, industrial players are seeing greater synergy there. For example, last year, the Chinese buyers have signed a number of long-term LNG contracts with U.S. sellers, and that's been happening since 2021. China accounts for roughly, you know, 60% of EV electric vehicle sales today. And it's, you know, uh, you know, the largest EV market in the world. 
meaning that you know it is an important market for American automakers. China is also a source of you know competitively priced EV batteries, uh, including for uh, U.S. automakers. Companies like Tesla um, really enjoy um, access to China's competitively priced, experienced EV battery uh, technologies by companies like CATL. The U.S. as an EV market is very attractive. So there is uh, synergy there, especially if cooperation could really yield uh, more, you know, perhaps rapid climate mitigation benefits is, you know, and, and also tied to the clean energy technology side is perhaps CCUS, carbon capture utilization and storage is one area where uh, the U.S. is the most experienced country with CCUS technology. But China is having so many uh, demonstration projects today. Many of these, you know, uh, CCUS projects are for, you know, uh, enhanced oil recovery and such. Uh, but there are about 100 CCUS demonstration projects. So this makes China naturally a very attractive place for U.S. companies to stay engaged, working with Chinese entities and non-Chinese, you know, other foreign entities, companies to do some testing and demonstration. And the outcomes could be both, you know, uh, beneficial business-wise, but then also for uh, Western com- uh, companies' ability to uh, replicate and have, you know, uh, you know, successful CCUS expansion at home. Uh, that then, in turn, can help uh, decarbonize uh, our, you know, economic sectors. Right. When I was in D.C. last year, I talked to various government officials who told me that CCUS was the one relatively non-controversial area where cooperation was possible between the governments, actually. Now, how and why has the U.S. come to see China's dominant position in clean energy technology as a threat? The perception has been changing quite Quickly and quite, you know, in sort of a one, you know, direction for the better or worse. I, I'd say that at first and foremost, you know, China is no longer an, ex, you know, sort of global exporter of raw materials, or you know, just a rather, you know, fairly simple manufacture of, you know, some basic goods and technologies. I mean, China has succeeded in turning its uh, raw materials, minerals, as well as its manufacturing base into higher, you know, economic value yielding sectors and sort of a uh, arena for itself. And and for that reason, I think it's just, it has been seen much more as rival or I guess competitor, um, if not sort of a, you know, threat, as opposed to part of this, you know, bigger global supply chains where Western companies and countries could really turn to to you know sort of to meet the needs of you know uh, merely sort of the um, you know midstream um, upwards or upstream to through midstream and as I mentioned briefly earlier you know the you know the manufacturing capacity for many of these you know um, advanced clean energy technologies that China has are quite remarkable you know the the China shares in the global manufacturing is about ninety percent in solar PV. I mean, close to, I think, 80% in EV batteries and et cetera. Whereas, you know, the U.S. Uh, capacity in, in these technology sectors have been, you know, rather limited and, and rather stagnant. For example, you know, less than 3% in global solar PV manufacturing and, you know, you know roughly 7% in EV batteries. 
And also for the innovation side, you know, again, innovation really shows you where, you know, the, the country is investing, where you know, even though China is starting from a fairly small, you know, uh, or modest baseline, you know, their China's patent applications for many of these clean energy technologies are rising. For example, you know, on the annual basis uh, in the last decade, China's application, patent applications grew at over 15%. For things like PV um, and and wind, solar, it's you know it's definitely uh, much more of a competitor now. It's also it's not just China. I think U.S. has also come to realize how vulnerable it has become to you know potential supply chain disruptions that may arise from deteriorating ties with China. Unfortunately, you know when it comes to things like critical minerals. China is the largest source of uh, imports for roughly 26 out of 50 minerals that are classified as critical by the U.S. government. So this, you know, becomes sort of potential choke point in the era when I think a lot of uh, U.S. policymakers are starting to see actions and policy statements from China with sort of a growing uh, sense of unease and mistrust and if not distrust. Where is the United States' perception of China, perhaps distorted, and that's my word, not yours, um, where, where is the perception of China's dominant position in clean energy technology a little bit different from maybe the reality? China, um, China's rise as a major clean energy technology leader, in my view, will have multiple factors, and some were you know, driven by sort of industrial you know, policy that Washington has to has come to view as problematic, including some of the steps uh, that are seen, you know, unfair. It's also I don't think the Chinese rise was driven by some, you know, desire to dominate the the global economy or really, you know, completely dominate the global supply chains for clean energy technologies and and their sort of a requ- requisite minerals and materials. The Chinese industrial players were motivated by the desire to meet the, the the needs of many Western companies and countries that you know introduce subsidies to um, incentivize the deployment uh, rather than sort of a development or manufacturing uh, in the early part of 2010s. Also, you know, I mean, and that also certainly included you know strong and growing renewable energy interest in Europe. And and also, I think China itself is interested in you know really reducing its you know dependence on coal, although that continues to be a sort of an uphill battle. To the extent that you know they were able to grow uh, manufacturing capacity for many of the components, they were you know helping to have more cost efficiency uh, and reduction for both you know external markets and internal markets. So China's rise was not really uh, originally for quite a while, you know, not driven by its desire to dominate or really the perception that it, it, it's, it's some sort of a zero-sum arena for competition. I think, you know, it's possible that uh, many Chinese policymakers saw this as still an um, area where there is enough synergy you know, some sort of division of labor, not, you know, and to some extent, perhaps the Western economies being uh, mainly buyers of many of the components that China would be producing. Uh, but then quickly, I think China has succeeded in also uh, developing the 
the end user segment for obviously EVs today, but many of the uh, wind and solar uh, components as well. Yeah, on that point, I think it's underestimated in the United States how much impact the demand side policies, that is to say, state efforts to increase domestic demand for these technologies led to the dominance of the supply chains of solar and batteries and electric vehicles. And those, in many cases, those policies were supported directly by subsidies paid by Chinese domestic consumers or uh, electricity consumers or EV buyers. Lastly, just to close, what are the potential downsides of what you call clouded judgment about the inevitability of a zero-sum competition on the energy transition? Do you see both pros and cons of the present competition? For example, if the perception of Chinese dominance has led to belated investment in infrastructure and low-carbon energy in a race to the top, or is it mostly just adding costs and foreclosing opportunities for beneficial trade and collaboration in fields that might depend on it, like CCUS you mentioned? So is is this perception of competition or conflict resulting in mostly negatives or a mix of negatives and positives? It's a mix of positives and negatives, in my view. And let me start with the positives first. The, you know, things like the Inflation Reductions Act has really jump-started the U.S. effort to onshore, you know, uh, many of the clean energy manufacturing capacity, including EV battery supply chains. And without, you know, these laws, the U.S. ability to deliver on our own commitment to reduce greenhouse gases by 2030 was really questioned prior to IRA passage August last year, about a year ago. I believe that the the modelers pointed to roughly low 30% percentage points for the the level of reduction uh, that was likely. We're you know closer to being able to deliver you know forty to forty five percent greenhouse gas emissions reductions. That's just as a result of federal effort plus state effort or local efforts could be more than that. Mainly federal, but you're right. I mean, I think a lot of states are have you know trying to have generate more synergy, and, and I think many of the actually for decarbonization purpose, you know, some states have very you know forward looking you know very strong board of environment. And, and also for, you know, to attract manufacturing investments, both, you know, U.S. and non-U.S. investments into their states. Uh, some of the state leaders are quite proactive in, in making sure that the state has very good synergy with the federal level uh, support. So these, you know, numbers are really encouraging. And uh, I also think that there is a more of a growing bipartisan sort of a recognition that government, whether federal or state, has a role to play in ensuring, you know, this energy transition, which, you know, is really a massive industrial, you know, sort of, a, I guess, restructuring or transition, you know, uh, endeavor. You know, I think some, you know, who believe in, you know, much more limited role for the government and much more market-driven transition I, I do think they, they probably still, you know, side with that. But even then, um, having, you know, been facing this, you know, growing competition competition from China, whose success was largely driven by sort of a multi-decadal industrial strategy and, and successful execution, execution, although 
there are some problematic actions, such as, you know, market distorting steps in, you know, whether minerals markets or others. But I think there is this, you know, within Washington, even though the idea is not to replicate, obviously, you know, China's Chinese model of, you know, uh, industrial strategy or, you know, the uh, government intervention in market. I, I'm, I certainly do not think that's where, you know, policymakers in Washington uh, are aspire to head to. Yet, I think, you know, leaving everything, everything to the market force is, you know, no longer really an attractive prescription if the United States is to really stay competitive, you know, arena. But the, the minuses are, you know, uh, also has a fairly long list as, you know, both the United States and China and perhaps other economies try to have, you know, much more inward looking approach to manufacturing deployment of clean energy technologies. I think, you know, there is the duplicated uh, innovation efforts and that in turn can really you know, lead to, at the global scale, not the most efficient allocation of funding for innovation. And also, I think the human resources, you know, as they are regionalized, may not really suggest the most you know, optimal and, and rapid you know, discovery of solutions for many of these challenges that we face against the climate change. Uh, also, as I've noted, you know, market inefficiency is another con or minus that you know could persist from the current U.S.-China relations or dynamics. And as you know, you mentioned, Anders, I think you know, the, the clean energy technology cost reduction um, benefit could be much more limited. But I think you know the race to the top. You know, I think it takes both countries to you know, realize where, you know, uh, cooperation could and should be safe and, and equally beneficial. And there are definitely areas where cooperation is difficult is in, and perhaps is not uh, wise, given the current actions and, and policy statements that Washington views as concerning to the both the global order, but then also U.S. national security. And I think that there's also, I think, recognition in a lot of places that the clean energy transition, aside from not being a zero-sum game between the U.S. and China, also affects other countries, such as in the developing world, where the cheapest technology is absolutely essential for the energy transition, and it probably won't be developed locally. So if the world is totally regionalized and not cooperating, then the energy transition will really depend on those solutions emerging at a very low cost. And that probably will come down to China. Thank you so much, Jane. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining me and for your contribution to the forum. Thank you so much, Anders. A reminder to our listeners that the Oxford Energy Forum on China and the geopolitics of energy is available on our website. We hope you enjoy reading it and listening to the other podcast episodes on this fascinating topic. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programs, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org.